Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do hold those two things that we have worth and we have unworthiness. And those two things both, both find their, their meaning at the cross. The cross of our Redeemer. The one who purchased us. To put us where we belong. And God, there, there are so many times as we sing those words that my soul is satisfied in you alone. And God, there are so many times where I know just even in this last week I've, I've tried to satisfy my soul with other things at different times. Whether that's my hard work or my pride or my solutions to problems. Lord, our, our satisfaction, our deepest soul longings can only be met in You. And Lord, I pray that we would come here this morning as, as deer panting for water, but instead of coming to a, to a stream, that Lord, that we would come to You and You would be our living water, God, that You would satisfy our souls, that You would satisfy this deep, dehydrated panting within us. Lord, let us, as we open Your Word, to look at Jesus, our Redeemer, God, let us drink deeply of You and Your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a young, naive college student who grew up under the benevolent state government of Nebraska, I was in for quite a shock one day in a northwest Iowa town as I went uh, myself, an under-caffeinated, penny-pinching college student, to buy my essentials, which at that time consisted primarily of cereal, milk, and Mountain Dew. I, uh, I went to the local grocer to buy my essentials, and I, I was trying to find the right balance of cheap and tasty, uh, but I was not willing to compromise Mountain Dew itself. I mean, that, there are some things you can only get with the name brand. And at that time, my blood, now my blood type is C. Uh, at that time, my, my blood type was M. And uh, so I, I got my, my cereal, my milk, and my Mountain Dew, finding the best value I could. I come up, and, and, and my, my high school career at Hy-Vee had prepared me for this moment. I had paid attention to the prices on the shelf, so if they were different in the cash register, I could, I'd know what they were, and I could call it out. I could get my value. So I put my items there, begin my stare down with the cashier. She's not going to take advantage of me. I'm not the average 18-year-old. She scans the cereal. That's fine. She scans the milk. That's fine. She scans the Mountain Dew, and there's a problem. Because the price is a whole 60 cents, near, over a half a load of laundry, more than what was on the, sh- on the shelf. And I said, that's not the right price. And she said, 
to this, again, naive college student who grew up under the benevolent state government of Nebraska, that I was no longer under a benevolent state government, but I was under a state government that robbed me a nickel for every pop can. (laughs) Crooks! And she said to me, with this little glint in her eye, well, you could redeem your nickel if you bring back your pop can. I'm like, look, lady, you and I both know that's not happening. (laughs) Either I get my Mountain Dew and lose my 60 cents for cans I'm already buying, or I suffer with no Mountain Dew at all, which clearly was not an option. That day I lost my nickels and a little bit of my dignity. And the state of Iowa is still holding those nickels hostage for for health reasons and, and ethics on taxation. I no longer drink soda. She said, You can have those nickels back if you redeem them with your cans. And we hear words redeem. So, you know, redeem your coupons, redeem this offer, redeem your soda cans for money that was stolen from you, redeem someone else's soda cans for money that was stolen from them. You know, when we, when we come to words redeem, redeemed, redemption, these words. Uh, they apply to our salvation, but they, they get used pretty commonly. You know, in other words that describe Jesus don't get used as commonly. You know, we're not calling anyone else great high priest or royal creator. No one else were like, you know, that guy's kind of like a new Adam. No, we don't, we don't say that about anyone else. But redeemed and, and redemption, these words get, get, thrown, get thrown around a lot. And, and clearly they mean something else about us than a Mountain Dew can that robbed a college student. And we have no problem calling Jesus our Redeemer. We sang to him as such just a few minutes ago. But when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our Savior, Jesus Christ, the wording of Redeemer and Redemption, they hold a uniqueness. So what do these mean? And the title, the title of Redeemer given to Jesus is a descriptor of what he's done for us It's also a teaching word that that informs us about salvation in some different ways. And so this morning, we're, we're looking at that knowing Jesus as our Redeemer helps us clarify the what and the how of salvation. Knowing Jesus as our Redeemer helps us clarify the what and the how of our salvation. Now, in order to move ahead clearly, I want to offer a simple definition of this verb, redeem. And and, and this definition is just going to help us operate this morning as we look at Jesus as our Redeemer, as we look at how He did that, and we look at what that means. Practically moving ahead. So here's, here's a simple definition. To return an object to its proper state by making an exchange or transaction based on the value of that object. So to return an object to its proper state 
by making an exchange or transaction based on the value of that object. So for something to be properly redeemed, it assumes that something's happened to that object that's taken it from where it should be. It assumes that something's happened to make something not right so that this object isn't where it should be and an exchange or transaction needs to be done so this object, in the case of salvation, us, can be brought back to the right place. So with us, we were created to walk in perfect unity with God. In the garden, Adam and Eve created to walk in perfect unity with God, take care of his stuff, walk with him in the cool of the afternoon, and be fruitful and multiply. That's what humanity was created for. But sin... Through Adam, and we, we, Dave, a few weeks ago talked about sin, and, and we followed that up with Romans 5. Through, through Adam came to all of us. Sin separated us from that. It took us outside of the original plan, the original will of God. And so we were in need of redemption because we were no longer where we were supposed to be. We're supposed to be in perfect relation to God. We're no longer there. And so something needs to happen to get us back to that. And God, in, in the writing of his word, he gives us this word redeem in the writing of scripture. This word that's, that's more financial than anything else to show that a price had to be paid. Because we were no longer children of light, but as Ephesians 2 says, we were children of wrath. And so Jesus died our death on the cross to make a way for people who believe in him to be bought back and to put in the right place. And this heart of redemption for God, this is seen through Scripture. It's not a New Testament idea at all. You don't need to turn with me if you don't want to. I'm going to move through these pretty quick. But in, Ephesians, in, in Exodus, in Exodus 6.6, 6, I'm going to start reading, uh, God's telling Moses the message he should say, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord God who has brought you out, of, out from under the burdens of Egyptians. So here, the people of God, they don't realize they're the people of God yet. They're the descendants of Abraham, and God said, I'm, I'm going to use you, Abraham. Your people are going to be my people. And here in Exodus, he's coming to the people and saying, I'm your God. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you from serving the Egyptians to serving me. Because your rightful place is serving me, the Lord your God, not Pharaoh. So I'm going to redeem you from Egypt by the mighty works of my outstretched hand. In Leviticus, uh, we get these different hints of redemption, that they are woven into the law in, in redeeming land that you had to sell, that you, you sell the land so you can pay uh, a debt that you have, and then you're allowed within a certain amount of time to redeem that land that you sold, to get it back, to bring it back into your possession. And God put that in the law, I think partly for the justice of it, and I think also to show us a little bit of what he's doing for us. That we have been taken out from under this perfect relationship with God and God's saying you need to be redeemed back into it. In Hosea, we get another interesting picture where uh, 
Um, Hosea, God is in Hosea 13, God is talking about the sin of Israel and the judgment he's bringing on them. And he says, in verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from, from Sheol? Shall I ransom them from the grave? Shall I save them? Shall I redeem them from death? Is what he says. And then we get the great line that we love to quote every Easter. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So, so God is bringing judgment, and he's saying, here's death, here's judgment. Shall I redeem them from that? And at this time, he, he, he allows judgment to come on them after Hosea. But we know for us that death doesn't going to have a sting with us who believe. The grave isn't going to have a victory. Because we are redeemed from death and we're redeemed to life. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that, Do you not know that you were bought with a price? You are not your own, so honor God with yourselves. You were bought with a price. You've been redeemed. There's a couple implications here. One is you are not your own. And this flies in the face of the American spirit of I'm free, I can do whatever I want within certain bounds. Because we are not our own. We belong to Christ. He has purchased us with His blood. The great theologian Bob Dylan said, you're either going to serve the devil or you're going to serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You can serve the devil, you can serve the Lord, but you're going to serve someone. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Your life does not belong to you. And a lot of the Christian life is continually saying, okay, God, what do I need to do to honor you? How can my life best honor you? How can I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Another implication is this. You have great worth. When I was a youth pastor, I would every now and then have some high school girls who were struggling with worth for, for various reasons. Uh, usually some jerk boy was the cause of it um, or, or something else. And I've had, I've had other kids, not just girls, I've had guys too struggle with what is my worth. If I, I, need to do, I need to perform X, Y, and Z when these trophies get these achievements, get on the National Honor Society, and then I'll have worth. And so I want you to think real quick. Look at your shoes and think, what did I pay for these shoes? And maybe some of you are thinking, Chuck, those shoes are older than you. I can't remember. That's fine. But you bought, some, you bought those shoes for something. Or think of your car. What did you pay for your car? And why did you pay that amount? Well, you paid that amount because that's what it was worth. Any object is only worth what, it's, what it's, someone's willing to pay for it. And so I can tell you this table that my Bible sits on is worth $5,000, but nobody's going to pay $5,000 for a table like this. So an object is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. God was willing to pay the blood of Jesus for your life. That is your worth. You were purchased with the blood of the Son of God. That was your redemption price. 
Your life is not your own. Because Jesus redeemed you, you as, an, as a person, this, this said object, right? You were, you were out of the right place. You were brought to the right place by an exchange. The wording of Hosea, ransom and redeem. And you were done so by the blood of Jesus. You were bought with a price, is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. Ephesians 1, 7 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespassing, trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This brings us to the how. How are we redeemed? If, if being redeemed means being taken from the wrong state to the right state by way of an exchange or transaction, how did that transaction occur? For that, we're going to go to Hebrews 9. When we look at how Jesus redeems us, it shows not only his power and greatness, but his love as well. And so we're going to walk through somewhat quickly Ephesians 9, 11 to 15. But let me read it first. But when Christ appeared as high priest, remember last week our great high priest, when, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, that is not of this creation. He's comparing it to the tabernacle and the earthly temple. Then he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a, of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will Christ, that sacrifice, purify our conscience, what's on the inside, from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, therefore, if he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred, Jesus is on the cross, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And all of you are thinking, ah, Hebrews cleared that up perfectly. As Hebrews often does. So what does this say? Verse 11 and 12. Comparing Jesus again to the high priest. The high priest would go in with the sacrifice to the tabernacle, the temple, to the holy place, and purify those things. And offer the sacrifices. But Hebrews tells us that's just a shadow of the heavenly things. And so, so 11 to 12 is that Jesus is our high priest. He didn't go into a tabernacle. He didn't go into a temple on earth. No, he went into heaven. He went to the holy places of heaven. The actual throne room of God. And when he did that by means of his own blood, he secured an eternal redemption. He didn't go to heaven to present the, the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood. 
This is a one-time sacrifice. To get a hint of, you know, these verses and the next few verses are going to talk about Jesus' blood compared to the blood of goats and calves and bulls. Turn with me, just, you may need to turn the page, but to chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse, I'm going to start reading verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Because Christ's blood did what, what the blood of the calves, of the bulls, of the goats could never do. There in 10, it says perfecting. Let's look what it says in verses 13 and 14. The blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of the heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. They kind of, it's like washing the outside of it. Have any of you guys seen, a, and, I, and I know you have, you see this and it just, hopefully it grosses you out like it grosses me out. Someone driving their vehicle. And it, through the windows, you can just see trash piled up. A couple years ago, I was driving. I'm driving down Douglas. And there's this guy in a relatively new F-150. And the only place without trash is where he's sitting. It's overtaken the dash. I'm like, this guy hopefully has radio controls on his steering wheel. Or, he, or he's stuck listening to whatever station it's on. And it's just filth. All it is, it's just like... It's fast food cups. It's just trash of one kind and another. And it's fold up to the side. I'm like, you can't even see the vehicles around you. You can't check all your mirrors. But the outside of that truck was clean. And there are so many times, you know, you see a car like that, you think, that car needs clean. So they take it through the touchless car wash, get the clear coat, water beads off of it, gets a, they get like the spotless rinse. Is the car clean? No. The Old Testament sacrifices, they they cleaned the flesh. But the conscience was not clean. As God said through his prophets time and time again, there's going to come a day where I write my word on their hearts. I don't just clean the flesh. I'm going to clean out the heart. I'm going to clean out the conscience, clean out the soul. Because what that needs, that, that vehicle needs to be parked next to a dumpster with like eight vacuums and like three carpet shampooers. And it needs a thorough clean. That or just light a match, start over, get insurance. I'm not advocating arson. <laughs> Nobody accused me of that. Uh, but the blood of Christ purifies our, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It takes, us, it takes our mind and our heart from the death of sin and to the living God. We're going to come back to verse 14 in a little bit to, to look at that last part, but let's go on to 15. 15 tells us what these previous verses mean. We have the therefore. Therefore, this is what all this means. It means that Jesus started a new covenant, one that promises eternal life, one that's set, that's secured 
And it occurred at his death. His death instituted this covenant. And Jesus did something different and greater than all the other sacrifices. And it redeems us from the transgressions that we've committed. It says under the first covenant. And Paul in Romans, he explains that the first covenant came and it, it showed so much of, it, it just exposed our sin. It, it helped count our sin. It showed us how much we needed a greater redemption. And Jesus comes and he is this greater redemption that doesn't just cover our sin and kind of wash it, but it, for one time, all sin was, he made a sacrifice in Hebrews 10. And it was all dealt with to fully sanctify us. Sin removes us from God, but the blood of Jesus satisfies on our behalf the just requirement of sin. As you read the Old Testament law, it's hard not to be shocked by the amount of blood offered just for one year's worth of sacrifices or even one month's worth of sacrifices. So much blood. And then you think about how that compounds over the years and decades of centuries of adherence to that. And all that blood was not enough. And if we were still doing it today, it still wouldn't be enough. But Jesus, one time, died on the cross. His blood spilled out, went to the heavenly places, made purification for our sins, and fully redeemed us. He died our death. He satisfied the wrath of God. He satisfied the requirements of the law so that we don't have to continually offer sacrifices. His sacrifice that has no expiration date still covers us today. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe paints a great picture of this. Edmund has been a traitor. He's helped the white witch. And as a traitor, the white witch brings Edmund to, the, to Aslan. And she says, he's been a traitor. And the deep magic of the woods says that as a traitor, his life belongs to me and his treachery can only be paid for with his own blood on the stone table. So I'm going to kill him on the stone table. And Aslan pulls the witch aside for a one-on-one conversation that no one can hear. And in that conversation, he says, Will my blood do? If my blood is poured out, can he live? And she, The witch thinks she has a pretty good deal here. She says, of course. Aslan redeemed Edmund from the requirement of his treachery. Our sin, the wages of sin is death. Jesus redeems us from the paycheck of death that our sin deserves. And he does it by his blood. The state we were in had a real problem. And redemption was necessary and it was executed through Jesus. But we are not redeemed to a static state awaiting heaven. We are not redeemed so we can sit here and go, Oh, when do you think you'll go to heaven? Hmm. I'm going to drive fast so I get there quicker. You know, we're not redeemed to be static awaiting for Jesus to return or until we die and go to heaven. 
We are redeemed for more than that. And I have a couple passages. We're going to get ready to dive into Psalm 107. But before that, I want to look at a couple passages. The first is, let's go back to Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, through who the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, so we are redeemed from the dead works, to serve the living God. And then we have Titus 2.14. We can put in parentheses Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so with Hebrews and with Titus and other passages, we have this image that we are redeemed from something and redeemed to something. We are not just saved from death. We are saved to newness of life. And so if you've you've been sitting around through your Christianity, through your faith, thinking, well, I'm saved now. I I have nothing to do. I have good news. You do have something to do, and we're going to get into that. So you can stop sitting around. That's what you were hoping to hear. Knowing Jesus as our Redeemer exposes what we are redeemed from. Turn with me to Psalm 107. The Wednesday women's Bible study is is going over this psalm, and they're taking several weeks to do it. We're going to do it in just a few minutes, so I know I'm going to miss something. Psalm 107, we, we read it, we read most of it as a, as a responsive reading a little bit ago. But it starts out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. And gather in from all the lands. Here's one of those Old Testament visions of, and, and hints that God really cares for the nation. His heart is a redemption from the nations. And gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. And so here's what the story of the redeemed is going to be. And, and as we look at these different stories of the redeemed laid out in, in Psalm 107, we see what they're, they're saved from. We see what they're saved to. And what, one thing that's interesting with all of them is they all give thanks. Let them give thanks. Let them thank the Lord. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. We're going to see that over and over again. And in these descriptions is the story of the redeemed. So let's look at some descriptions here. In verses 4 to 6, we see that some wandered in the desert waste, finding no way. They were hungry. They were thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. So we're saved from being lost. In verses 10 to 12, see that some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death. They were prisoners, affliction, and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of the Lord. Verse 12, he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Our sin puts us in captivity. We are captive to sin. Romans 6 says that we are slaves to sin, and sin we know is a harsh taskmaster. In verses 17 to 19, we see that some were fools, 
through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquity, they suffered affliction. They were, they were terminally ill with sin and the consequences thereof. Verses 23 to 28. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised stormy winds and lifted waves of the sea. And they, verse 27, they reeled and they staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. Right before that in 26, it says that their courage melted away. We are hopeless. There is great fear to be had when sin is your master. These men who should be courageous. The ocean was a fearful thing at that time. So that the guys that would go do their business there, they were kind of risky, they were brave, and their courage would melt away. We have no courage. We are hopeless. Sin takes those who are made in God's likeness from the security of the garden of God to being trapped in darkness, continually afflicted and without hope. Sin will always cost you more than you're able to pay, take you further than you want to go, and hurt you more than you can afford. If we were left to our sin, there would be no ability within us to provide light, hope, and freedom. This is what we're redeemed from. But let's look at what the psalmist says that we are redeemed to. There's a redemption with each of these groups. In verses 7 to 9, see, he led them by the straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. They're no longer in the wastes of the desert with no resources. Now they're in a city. There's markets, there's homes, there's water. We are saved from being lost and we are saved to being secure, being safe. Verses 13 to 16. They cried in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness from the shadow of the death. He burst their bonds apart. Verse 16. He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. We are saved from captivity and we are saved to freedom. I encourage you this week to, to take time to not only read Psalm 107, take time to read it slowly. Evaluate what God has redeemed you from, what He's redeemed you to. Also take time to read Romans 8. What does Paul tell you about the freedom in Christ in Romans 8? Verse 20 to 22, it, he answers the foolish, those who are terminally ill. And he, and he brings healing, he brings deliverance from destruction. They respond with thankful worship, testifying to God. It says, let them thank the Lord, the steadfast love, verse 21, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And check this out. Let them not only do that, these people who are ill and afflicted, let them tell of his deeds and songs of joy that we, the redeemed, can tell others about the redemption of God. That we're not just saved to sit and sing, but we are saved to sit, to stand, to sing, to celebrate, to offer sacrifices, and to tell others of the redemption we've received. 
that we are saved from terminal illness to living. And those who were, had no courage because it had melted away, they had no hope. God calms the waters. He brings them to a place that is calm, that is safe. He delivers them. He gives them security. He gives them hope. Jesus is our Redeemer. By, the blood, by His own blood, for the forgiveness of our sins, for us to walk with Him. We get to worship God. We get to join with those in Psalm 107. And we, it says, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. Let us thank the Lord for His steadfast love. You can be free from your sin, no longer under condemnation. We can walk in obedience with God who has made us, who has saved us. And we can wait in obedience while we eagerly wait for His return. I want us to take time to respond here. In a little bit, I'm, I'm going to pray. And I'm, I'm not going to say amen. I'm just going to leave it in silence. And I want you at that point to respond. And here's, I, I want to give you a couple things to think about as you prepare to respond. If you're here this morning, Jesus is not your Lord and you really associate more with that first half out of Psalm 107, I want you to consider making Jesus your Lord during this time. Would you start, would you start maybe for the first time you'll ask God to forgive your sins? And if you do that, please come up afterwards. I want to hear about that. Would you make Jesus your Lord? Would you start doing that today? Would you start walking with Him? Start walking with your Redeemer. Give your life to Him. Say, I don't want to be a slave of sin anymore. I want to be a slave of righteousness. I want to walk with my Lord. I want a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And maybe you're here, you're a believer, and and you need to wrestle with your redemption in a couple different ways. One, you need to say, well, I need to start living like I'm redeemed. And so maybe you need to respond by by asking God for forgiveness for some things in your life. For God to redeem you, that you would serve Him with your, uh, I almost tripped. Um, that you would serve Him with your, with your whole heart. Whether you're at home, whether you're at work, whether you're out with friends, that you would be serving Him in some capacity. Or simply, maybe you just need to respond by joining the encouragement of Psalm 107 that you would thank the Lord for His steadfast love. And maybe you haven't sincerely thanked God for the love He's given you in a while. Would you take time this morning to to offer that up to the Lord? Just say, God, thank you so much for what you've done. For how you've redeemed me. For how you've pulled me out of the grave. That the grave has no victory with me because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. My Redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you would redeem us from our sins, God. We thank you that you purchased us. That you satisfied the demands of our sin with the blood of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for redeeming us. For bringing us back to where we should be.